Good morning, everyone. It's such a privilege to be asked to share with you again this morning. And before I start speaking, I wanted to show you a little clip to kind of introduce the topic I'm going to be covering today. So take a look at this. Do you think it suits me? Oh, yes, it does, madam. And those artificial cherries are very youth-making. Don't you think so, Miss Brahms? Oh, yes, Mrs Slocum. Takes years off her. Thank you, Miss Brahms. (laughs) And that green goes so well with Madam's eyes. I've got brown eyes. That's what I mean. The sort of brown that goes so well with green. Gives you a sort of film star look. Marlene Dietrich. She's in her 70s. (laughs) Well, she wasn't when she was about 40. (laughs) Do you think I should wear the brim up or down? Down. (laughs) Will you take the hat, madam? No. No. I think I'll try on a pair of shoes instead. I see. Captain Peacock? Yes, Mrs. Slocum. Would you direct Madam to the shoe department? Certainly. Will you come this way, Madam? I'm so sorry we couldn't find anything to go with your face, Madam. But no doubt you'll try us again. (laughs) Awkward cow. (laughs) Oh, it's brilliant. The old ones are the best. So if you haven't already twigged, today I want to explore with you the subject of being servant-hearted, the idea of living in a way that puts other people's needs before our own, essentially loving our neighbours, whoever they are, the, the people group and community that God has put us in, loving those neighbours as ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 20, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. And during his time here on earth, that's exactly what Jesus did. You know, he lived a life of service to others, making the ultimate sacrifice on the cross of his life for ours. He came to serve, not be served. And we are called as his followers to do the same. Now, this whole idea, this whole concept is such an alien way to live. You know, the world today is saturated with literature and films and courses, all kind of exploring self-care and self-help, you know, what I can do to achieve happiness for myself. You know, we're encouraged to find out what makes us happy and then go after it. Now, there's nothing wrong with looking after ourselves, you know, being good stewards of the lives and bodies that God has given us. But I think we have a tendency as human beings to kind of overemphasize me, know, what makes me happy. You only have to spend two seconds in a toddler group or, you know, spend the morning in Embers and Ignite, our naught to five kids groups here at church, to know that the very nature of human beings is to think of ourselves first anyway. You know, we tend not to need help to do it. You put a toy in the middle of the room that all the toddlers want and then stand back and watch the carnage ensue as every child believes that they have the right to play with that toy first because they want it, which surely qualifies them. My youngest son, Zach, when he was little, he used to love those little tykes cars, you know, the kind of plastic toddler-sized cars that they can ride around in? And for some reason, there's only ever one of these cars in a toddler group. It's ridiculous. Someone needs to change that. And if I'd come to these toddler groups with him and someone was already in that, that car and I was foolish enough to take my eyes off him for just a second... He would bowl over to that car, literally tip it on its side, you know, turf that other kid out, and then jump in and happily ride around, completely unaware of how unfair, like how unjust his actions had been. 
know, thinking of other people and treating others the way we want to be treated is something that we learn as we grow up, hopefully, you know, so that we can avoid that toddler-type carnage of everyone just taking what they please, so that we can live harmoniously together. But what we are called to be as followers of Jesus is like a step beyond that civility, like a step further than just being kind and thoughtful. We're called to be, as it says in Philippians 2, consider others better than ourselves. And this way of living is just like swimming against the tide. It's completely countercultural. It's just the opposite of what we see in the world and what our very natures want us to do. So why does God ask us to live in this way? Why does he put this seemingly impossible task before us? One of the lessons I've learned over the years is that living that servant-hearted life ensures that we remain dependent on God. You know, because we can't do it in our own strength. We just can't. It doesn't work. Dependence on him and working in partnership with him is something God's always going to want to nurture and grow in our lives. If you think about it, you know, the God who created the universe is totally capable of blessing and serving those people around us without our help. But he chooses to work alongside us, to work through us, both to kind of grow our relationship with him and grow our character, as well as get that job done that needs doing. A bit like we do with our children. You know, we get them to do chores in the house so that they don't grow up to be adults that don't know how to look after themselves. You know, at first, it's for their benefit rather than ours. I remember when our boys started to help unload the dishwasher in the mornings. (laughs) Oh, my word. It was painful. I couldn't be in the room. You know, all the banging and the crashing and the kind of climbing up on the sides to put the plate in that topmost cupboard. It was awful. You know, I couldn't be there to watch. It would have been so much easier and quicker and well executed if I'd just done it myself. But then they would never have learned how to do it. You know, they would have grown up to be adults who don't know how to unload the dishwasher, which is just unacceptable. And now they do it fairly well. You know, I can be in the kitchen when it's happening, so it's definitely improved. And the same is true for us serving others. Of course God could do a better job on his own. You know, that's without question. But he chooses to work alongside us, both for our benefit, as well as the benefit of the person or the people that we're serving. You know, we learn to be dependent on him when we do it. We learn how to love well. We we learn how to be more like him when we serve. We need God's strength, his guidance, his resources, all to live a life of service to others. Because if we don't do that and we try to do it in our own strength, we just become resentful of the people that we're trying to serve. You know, we end up harassed and overworked or penniless. You know, we need him to give us his resources, his perspective, his heart for others, so that we don't become weary in doing good, as it says in Galatians 6. And so that we can truly say it is more blessed to give than receive, as it says in Acts. My husband, Rob, and I, over the years as Christians, have felt prompted at different times by God to give money to people or causes. Um, And there's nothing like giving money when you don't have much to really increase your dependence on God. But at the same time, we have never gone without. We have always been compensated by him when we've served others in this way. So now we've got like this expectation when we serve others that he's going to provide for us, that he'll provide the resources for us to serve other people in this way. 
recently, um, I was praying for a friend of mine who's not a Christian, who was going through a really difficult financial crisis. I was just on my own at home praying, and I was asking God to give Rob and I some money so that we could help this friend out. We could pay one of these bills that this friend had. There were lots of bills they had, but there was this one specific bill that we really wanted to pay for them, but we just didn't have the money to do it. So we prayed. A few days later, we get this random, you know, unasked for financial gift from somebody. And we knew immediately that was God answering our prayers. That was God giving us the resources because we knew to ask him to help this person who doesn't even know him, doesn't know that they can ask him to help them in this way. And, it, you know, it was amazing. It was amazing for us. And then a few days later, this same friend who doesn't know Jesus, is not a Christian, doesn't know what's going on, comes into a small sum of money, like gets this inheritance that they didn't know they, they were ever supposed to get. And now suddenly they're not in this financially dark place that they were in. It was crazy. And it was so amazing for Rob and I to be involved in this. You know, to have that sense of, working alongside God for the good of somebody that we love who doesn't know, him, doesn't know him yet. You know, what we did was small, but we were so blessed by it. That gift that we got given wasn't for us, but we were so blessed by it. You know, it increased our faith in him and what he can do. In that situation, I can say we were more blessed giving than receiving. Another reason he asks us to live this servant-hearted life of thinking of others before ourselves, is because it is countercultural. It's just the opposite of the world and what our human instincts of self-preservation and looking out for number one want to do. You know, when you choose to live as Jesus did, to serve rather than be served, you draw attention to yourself and your way of living glorifies him. It's like a reflection of his sacrifice, an echo of what he did for us all on the cross. And people notice, and they want to know more. It says in Philippians 2, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. So when you serve... When you live that servant-hearted life, it's like this amazing evangelistic tool that you have at your disposal. I became a Christian in my 20s, but before then I'd spent my life going to a Catholic church and going to a Catholic school. So I think I was quite difficult to evangelize. You know, I was difficult to talk to about Jesus because I thought I knew everything. You know, I knew the Bible fairly well. I knew who Jesus was and what he did. So it was difficult to try and tell me because I thought I knew what I was talking about. I even thought, you know, if it does turn out to be true and I die, I'm definitely getting into heaven, right? You know, I've got like a Catholic stamp. I've got, you know, I've done my christening. I've done my first Holy Communion, my first confession, which was a little bit awkward. And then, you know, I've been confirmed by the bishop. You know, I'm in. If there's heaven, I'm there. And then in my teens, I met kind of really lovely, well-meaning Christians who did try to talk to me about Jesus. And I can remember thinking... You know, there's just nothing different between me and you. You're the same as me. You're, you know, worried about your future. You're self-protecting, self-focused. You know, generally nice people, but then so am I. And then a few years later, kind of my late teens, early 20s, I went to drama school. And I met there a Christian girl who was truly living a servant-hearted life. 
Now, drama school is like a bit of a weird environment. On the one side, it's like this amazing, colourful place that's really creative and lots of fun. But then on the flip side, there is just this air of grasping desperation, which is totally understandable. You know, in an industry like the entertainment industry, where it's totally oversaturated, there's millions of actors and performers all trying to get the same few jobs and the same few agents. You know, that phrase, every man for himself, takes on like a whole new level of realness. And in that environment where it was really competitive and backstabbing, there was this girl who was just living like Jesus. She really loved us, really loved us, and it stood out. I remember one evening in the pub after rehearsals, one of the directors from the show that we were in talking about this girl and saying, oh, she's very self-deprecating, you know, oh, how British. But it wasn't that. She didn't put herself down. She just loved us as Jesus did. She put us before herself, and it stood out. You know, she did, like it says, shine like a bright light, and it changed my life forever. So God wants us all to live like that. He wants us all to live that servant-hearted life because it stands out, and it points people towards him. You know, you don't have to be amazing at preaching or have all the right words to say. Some people do, and that's great for them. But I, for one, take heart knowing that the way I live my life and my actions, you know, the love that I display for those people around me is just as powerful as the best preached sermon. That I can, as it says in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. You know, it's not about avoiding talking about Jesus, but rather that the words that you use when you do share him with people that don't know him, having just so much more weight behind them when you are living a servant-hearted life. So Jesus told us to imitate him, to serve rather than be served, to bear one another's burdens, because it points the world and those who are in it towards him. And it brings the people of the world that don't know him into the very presence of their Lord and Saviour, And then, like, as a bonus, at the same time, it strengthens our relationship with him as we begin to seek out his heart for those people around us. So what does living a servant-hearted life actually look like, and how do we do it? Now, being servant-hearted is not just filling your calendar full of good deeds or joining every rota, you know, overwhelming your neighbours with gifts. I'm not saying don't do those things. All those things are good, and we should all look to do them. But they're kind of like the byproducts of your servant heart. You know, they're like the fruit, the side effects of your servant heart. Being servant hearted is a heart culture. It's like a mindset of loving others. And I mean really loving them. Without love, these good deeds that we do are just that. You know, good deeds, empty of feeling and power. And both the giver and the receiver are not blessed to the full measure intended from them. But with love, these good deeds that you do can change someone's world. Having children really changed my idea of having a servant-hearted mindset, you know, of loving others above myself. Suddenly, there were these beings whose lives I valued over my own, you know, whose comfort and safety and well-being I put before my own. I remember once when all three of my children had a tummy bug, all at the same time, of course... (laughs) Robert, my husband, worked shifts, and he was at work. Um, It was midnight, and I was literally running from one throwing-up child to the next. It was hideous. 
Um, and I'd managed to sort of contain the damage. You know, the carpet had stayed vomit three at that time. Um, and then there was this lull, as you get with a tummy bug, where I thought, oh, it's gone. Everyone's asleep. I'm going to go downstairs and empty out the sick bowl. <laughs> what a schoolboy error. <laughs> I kind of got down the stairs, stepped into the kitchen, and I heard Joshua, my eldest, going, Mummy, I'm going to be sick. So I kind of turned around, raced up the stairs as quickly as possible with the bucket still full in my hands, got, to the, got into the bedroom, and he just threw up everywhere. Oh, my word. It was hideous. And for those of you that don't me, don't know me, don't me, don't know me, I'm really neurotic when it comes to cleanliness. So this situation is like my own personal hell, like, oh, the worst thing that could ever have happened to me. But at the same time, you know, my little boy whom I love is sat there amongst those sick, matted bedclothes, kind of crying, sobbing his heart out, reaching out for me, wanting me to pick him up. And in that moment, you know, my mother instinct took over and I kind of overcame my revulsion to what was going on and just picked him up. You know, I put his need to be comforted above my own need just to get out of there as quickly as possible. And of course, in that situation, it's easy. You know, it was easy to make the love-motivated choice, the right choice, because he was my own child, you know, my own flesh and blood. But we are called to treat everyone as if they are our own flesh and blood. Jesus said in Matthew 22 that the greatest commandments to follow were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So loving those neighbors as you do your own flesh and blood, as you do your own children and families. So we need to start with our hearts. We need to ask God for his perspective for him to show us how he feels about the people around us. We need to be changed by him. My dad is a counsellor, that's his job, and he's been a counsellor for years, and he's a really successful one. And he thinks that part of his success, with like a whole range of diverse ages and people groups, is due to something that they call in the psychology world unconditional positive regard which is basically a posh word for kind of offering your client that you're counselling this kind of unconditional acceptance, no matter what their situation is. My dad describes it as having like a real empathy, like a real love, really rooting for that person that sat before you in the chair, no matter what they say, no matter what they've done. And part of my dad's success is he's got kind of a natural predilection towards empathy. He's just got a gift for being able to see things from the other person's perspective, being able to put himself in their shoes. And his clients pick up on this because you can't fake love. You can't. You can't fake acceptance. People know. They know. They know when you're rooting for them, when you're really on their side. It's not something you can learn in a classroom or, or read in a book. But God made us in his image. So we know that our original design was to be like that, was to be a people led by our hearts, a people that roots for others and loves well. So if we pray and ask for him to show us how he feels about the people around us, he will do it. You know, it's, it's already all there in our hearts that he made. We just sometimes have to dig through the muck of life and the, you know, the issues that we pick up along the way to get to it. But it's all there in all of us. 
I've started to do this when I spend time praying, and he really does answer this prayer. God so wants us to be motivated by love in everything that we do. He knows how effective we will be when we're motivated by love. It says in 1 John 4 that God is love. So when we love, we are effectively bringing the very presence of God into that situation with us. You know, his power, his authority, his wisdom. So if we want to see God moving, if we want to see people saved and people healed and miracles, then we have to start with love. We have to start with loving them. He's always looking for ways to expand our hearts, so I think he loves this kind of prayer and will answer it. It's like the lyrics of one of the worship songs we sing says, break our hearts for what breaks yours. You know, ask him that and then be prepared for him to do it. Another great way of learning to be servant-hearted, and this is going to sound really obvious, is just to get out there and start serving. You know, ask God for his perspective and his love for those people around us, and then just get out and do some serving. Jesus said in Matthew 25, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So when we serve, we are serving Jesus. It's an expression of love and worship to Jesus. Sometimes it can be difficult to serve. You know, when we don't feel like we're appreciated for what we're doing, when we feel like our efforts are overlooked. I know as a mum how frustrating it is to have spent like the whole evening making like a lovely home-cooked meal for my boys to kind of put it on the table to be met with their sighs and their, oh, I hate this. Why did you make this again? It's so frustrating. You know, or if you feel like your serving is just expected, you know, there's no thanks for it. You don't get anything in return for your serving. But we know that God sees our labours. He sees what we do, and it's easier to serve when we know that he is the recipient. It says in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. So we can serve in the knowledge that it is God we serve, and that what we do pleases him, you know, it blesses him, and he will use it to advance his kingdom, even if we can't see that it's making any difference just yet. A bit like with my boys and the unwanted, lovely home-cooked meals. You know, they don't understand properly the benefits of those meals yet. They just prefer a McDonald's every night, for sure. But if I let them do that, they would become ill eventually. You know, so I'm going to put that work in now, even though it's unappreciated by them, so that they can grow and be healthy. They can't see that benefit yet. And the same is true when we are obedient and serve people for the Lord. Sometimes it does feel like it's not making a difference. We feel like our serving is like, you know, a drop in the ocean. Like, how will this serving ever advance the kingdom of God? You know, those people stood on car park duty this morning. Or the people in the kids' work, you know, watching the craft that they planned for ages be knocked on the floor. And none of the children are listening to the Bible stories anyway. You know, how is this making a difference, Lord? But God will use it. Someone will find the church more accessible and start their first visit to church in a better frame of mind because of that person in the high-vis jacket waving them in. Children week on week hearing about God's love will be changed. Our serving makes a difference even if we don't see it. My eldest son, Joshua, 
came home from Blazing Angels the other night. Blazing Angels is like our pre-youth group that we have running here at church on a Sunday evening. Um, He came home from Blazing Angels, and he had a picture from God for me. (laughs) I mean, I was blown away. It was totally what I needed to hear that evening. You know, it was spot on. And then a few weeks later, he had a dream that he believed was from God, and he just stood calmly in the kitchen next to me, interpreting his dream for me. (laughs) I mean, who is this child? And I would love to take the credit for his growing spirituality. I really would. But it's not me, and it's not Rob. It's, you know, Liz Machel and Amelia Godden and Becky and Andy Stevens and all these other amazing people that we have here that give up their time, that give up their Sunday mornings and their Sunday evenings to teach my child what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You know, I am now seeing the benefits of their serving. And I don't think I've ever heard Joshua say, thank you for having me on a Sunday morning when I collect him. You know, he's just got an expectation that the kids' work will be running, as do I. So these people that serve him and his brothers and all the other children do it without being appreciated by the very people that they serve. So they could feel like it doesn't matter. They could feel underappreciated or become weary in doing good. But what a difference their serving is making. They are working with God to advance his kingdom, and I am seeing the fruit. So know that your serving will be used by God. Being servant-hearted will look differently for all of us. Some of us are great at getting up and leading worship in front of everybody. Some of us are brilliant at organizing meal rotors for people in need. Some of us are amazing at praying persistently and getting alongside people that are really struggling. Or Some of us are really good at hospitality and welcoming people. Whatever you're able to do, whatever you like doing, just do it. You know, no one job is better than the rest or more valuable or more important. We're as a church one body and we have to work together to be effective. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. So if you think standing on the car park, come rain, wind, or shine, is pointless, you're wrong. The Bible says you are indispensable, a part of the body that the body cannot function without. Jesus himself showed us that no job is too low, you know, no job is beneath us. In John 13, it recounts how Jesus gave himself the lowliest of tasks, washing the disciples' feet. And this would have been a truly disgusting task in his time, you know, reserved for the lowliest of servants in the household. When you think about it, people weren't just hopping in their cars, going to Tesco's and back. You know, they were walking, sometimes miles a day, on those dusty roads that would have been filled with the poo from all the oxen and the horses that were used to transport the goods to and from places. So you can see how that job, in particular, got the label of being like the worst of the worst, you know, for the lowliest, most unimportant servant. Yet this is what Jesus chose to do for his disciples, literally a few days before his death and resurrection, I think, to really drive home the importance of living a servant-hearted life, of putting others before ourselves, He did this seemingly outrageous thing, and then he told us to do the same. Sometimes we can feel like it's important to only serve in the areas that we are called to. And I love how in this one act, Jesus just totally blows that out of the water. 
Jesus' calling wasn't to be a feet washer. (laughs) You know, we know what his calling is. He said it in Luke 4, to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. There's no feet washing there. (laughs) But he did it that day anyway to set us an example. You know, if the Son of God himself can take on the least exciting, most unglamorous job, usually executed by the lowliest of servants in a household, then so can I. So today I want to encourage you all. Your serving in the church and outside of it is valued. It is seen by God. It will make a difference. Don't, as it says in Galatians 6, become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We all live such busy lives now. It's easy to feel like there isn't the time to serve. But it's essential. It's essential to grow our relationship with God. It's essential um, for God to advance his kingdom. It's essential for God to grow his church. As we serve and love others and pray to have God's perspective, you know, to see others as he sees them, we become more like him. And when we spend more time being the person that God created us to be, being his original design for us, then we can't help but have an impact on our families, on our communities, on our church. So spend some time today asking him to change your perspective, to see others as he does to break your heart for what breaks his, and then let's get out there and serve. You know, we've got so many opportunities in the church to serve. Here it is, as if by magic. (laughs) Take one of these home today. This is the serving booklet that Steve was showing you earlier. It's got in there all the different ways you can serve in this church. Flick through it, find something you like, and join up. It's so easy. You know, and we can do it knowing that we follow Jesus' brilliant example, that he did the same, that God sees our efforts, and that he will use them to advance his kingdom. So why don't we pray? Would you all like to stand up?